minister uh, with me. The question, question 52. What is required in the first commandment? And the answer. The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. We think it's important just to do catechism questions every week. And um, if you're kind of interested, like I've never been to our church that did catechism questions. That's an interesting thing. Uh, please, if you use the digital hymnal, uh, we, we, we include the catechism question on that digital hymnal. And also, if you click on the link right there, that the, kind of the, the title for uh, catechism, it'll take you to the, to the PDF that has all the ones that we've done so far. And so please use that. It's a great thing to use with children. It's a great thing with a Bible study or a discipleship group um, to kind of learn theology in kind of question form. And um, it's just a really good way to learn doctrine and to continue to grow in your understanding of God's Word. Uh, we are in the book of, of um, uh, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. We're doing a series on our values, so if you're new to Redeemer Fellowship Church, we are, every every kind of beginning of the fall, we like to go back to the basics and, 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 and kind of talk about uh, why we exist as a church and, and talk about our values and, and what uh, what is important about Redeemer Fellowship Church and the first week, we, our value, our first value is Christ. Um, our second value is character. We preached on that in the book of James, chapter one, me and, and David Greenwood. And the third value is community. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And all those values, if you're like, well, what, where are those at? Like, how do I know that there are no values? We, we, there, there are four banners in the back of the room that kind of we want. To, if anyone comes into our church, we want those values to be visible, and so that people go, okay, what is this about? What is, what is why is Christ? Character, community, and commission. Why is that? Why are there banners for those four things? What is that about? And then you can talk to someone from the church and say, Why do y'all value these four different things? So uh, we value these four things. We want to talk about community today. And a great passage of God's word to really talk about community is Acts chapter two, I'm talking about the early church. So Acts chapter two, verses 47, 42 through forty-seven. And this is after Peter has, uh, had preached the uh, sermon at Pentecost. And, um, and so we see in 41 that uh, 3,000 people had accepted Christ and, and had been baptized. And then in 42, we kind of get this summary of the early church and what that community was like. So starting in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayer. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, and had, at any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who Lord, I thank you so much for your word, and Lord, we thank you for the just the topic of community, Lord, and talking about your church, and just learning more about how church should be structured, how what should church be like, what what, what should the life of the church scribe and, and reflect, Lord, and what substance should it have in it, Lord, and we, we thank you because we sometimes forget what we should be doing here. 
we get stuck in the routine, Lord, of Sunday morning and Bible studies and, and, and service projects and outreaches and door-to-door evangelism and mission trips and all these different things, and we sometimes forget why we do what we do and what we should be doing. What is the, the number one priority, Lord? And so we thank you for the book of Acts, and we thank you for what it reminds us and, and tells us what the early church was doing. Lord, we pray for a, 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 a church plant, Lord. We prayed for them last week, Lord, and Lord, we want to pray for them again. We want to pray for Servant Fellowship in Boonville. Lord, we, we pray for Ryan and Jessica Moore. We pray for Jamie, uh, Jamie and uh, Caitlin Cave, Lord. We, Lord, lots happened in the last week, Lord. We don't know, understand why. We don't understand what's really going on, Lord. But you know what's going on. Lord, I know some have probably sinned. Some have not followed your word. Some have not been faithful in some ways. Some have gossiped. Some have, have looked, thought badly of others. We should never think badly of our fellow brothers and sisters. May that be a lesson for us as a church who are young and, and somewhat immature. Lord, may we remember, Lord, who we are in Christ. And may we love one another. Lord, we pray for everyone here. We pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Who is new to Christianity. They're new to church. And they're here just to kind of check it out, Lord. And some interesting things. A lot of standing. A lot of sitting. A lot of singing. A lot of putting money in baskets, Lord. And not really sure what this is all about. But Lord, may they not leave here without hearing the gospel. And may they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we were all sinners and that Christ Jesus has won us victory over sin and death. May they hear that. And may you persuade them of the truth. And may you save them. And as the passage says, may you add to our number those being saved. We pray that you would do that today. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, there's a, a big question. First off, the, the title is of the sermon is the means of, the means of grace. Talking about community and uh, kind of the, the big idea, kind of the big theme, if you want to say it. It's something, if, you want to, if you're taking notes, it's a good thing to write down. Um, God's means of grace to his church creates the greatest witness to the world of the power of God. God's means of grace to his church creates the greatest witness to the world of the power of the gospel. Um, and uh, Robert would use my iPad, so I'm using paper today. It's a little unusual for me. Um, uh, why is the church not growing? It's kind of a question, uh, kind of a blogosphere question, uh, kind of a question that it would be like in a Christianity Day article or a Gospel Coalition article online or something maybe John Piper would write about or talk about. Maybe a conference would be on this theme. Why isn't the church growing, right? And there's probably a lot of answers to that question. Some good, some not so good. But I think the biggest issue that, that the, causing the church not to grow, I think it's a community issue. I think what the world sees in the church, they see a lot of people that are really not committed to one another. They're committed to maybe coming to a religion. They're committed to a traditional ritual. They're not committed to a communal life not committed to people. And I think that is a big issue. And I think that's one of the reasons why the church, the world, is not coming and, and taking part. Because they're not, um, they're, not, uh, they're not curious at all about what, what goes on here. They're not curious about why are these people loving each other the way that family, families love each other, the way that mothers and fathers love their children, the way that grandparents love their families. Why, why is the church really no different than the world? I think that's one of the reasons why they're not curious 
about what happened here at church. Uh, I know some of y'all are big Babylon Bee fans. Who are, who are Babylon Bee fans? Yeah, that's y'all should all raise your hands. And I love Babylon Bee on Facebook. But you've got to follow Babylon Bee. It's got some really funny political and kind of Christian satires. One a few years ago that I thought was extremely funny. It kind of helps with this topic. It's the it's the story. Uh, it was just a fake story. It's, just, it's all for laughter. But it, there's a lot of truth in humor, right? There's a lot of truth in comedy. And there's the the one about the man who was not a part of who, who decided to be a part of the Universal Gym. And it's, it kind of the kind of play on words of like someone who says, well, "I'm not a part of the local church. I'm part of the Universal Church." Meaning, I don't go to. I'm not committed to a local church. I'm committed to the Universal Church. I'm the. I'm kind of. I'm just a part of the the, the invisible uh, church. I'm not really a part of a local assembly or a local congregation. And the kind of the funny thing is, is this man who's a part of the Universal Gym says he's like, you know, my gym is nature, right? I just like to go out in nature, and that's my gym. You hear this story about people in church, right? I don't go to church because I go out in nature, right? I worship God on my hikes. And the, the way that the story, the, the Babylon B satire ends, he says, the man hasn't worked out in 14 years, right? He, he hasn't actually worked out in his universal gym, right? He hasn't done a part of a real place that he goes to on a regular basis that he's disciplined in doing. And because he's so vague and so ambiguous with his, with his understanding of, of the gym that he goes to, he hardly ever goes. And that's kind of how it happens with church, right? People have this ambiguous view, right? That, wow, I'm kind of part of the universal church. I'm not really part of a church. I don't think I really need to be part of a church. I kind of just do whatever I want to do. And if I want to feel close to God in the mountains, I'll go to the mountains. There's another Babylon B article about the family, the, the parents who were shocked their college student uh, left the faith. Even though they took her to church just four times a year, right? And this idea that like, I'm surprised that our daughter would leave the church or leave her faith when she got to college. We took her to church faithfully four times a year, right? We took her every Easter. I mean, yeah, I mean there were baseball games and soccer games, but if those games were ever rained out, we were at church. It's kind of how the thing goes. And it's this is really kind of how the world works, right? I mean, people are so shocked that their children leave the faith. But actually, they never really committed to the church at all. They never were committed to a church community. And so their child really never followed Christ. They never knew what it meant to be a faithful Christian because their parents never actually showed that. You, know, you hear this a lot with athletes who retire. They say, like, you, what do you miss about playing football or basketball? And you usually get the same answer. They don't miss practice. They don't miss the road trips. They don't miss the injuries. They always will say they miss the locker room. They miss their that companionship. They played sports. They you're, uh, actually Andrew Luck said that he was going to miss the locker room. He was going to miss the camaraderie of his teammates. And I think this is a, a huge issue. And the reason why the world is not persuaded to Christianity is because they don't see the visible gospel. They don't see the church living out the gospel in regular their regular ordinary life. I think this is important in a postmodern world. The postmodern world, people who are not, they don't believe in, 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 in an objective truth, they need to see and touch with their senses the gospel. They need to see it. They need to see it visibly shown. And that is where the church comes in. That the church community, when the church loves each other and it cares for each other and devoted to one another and devoted to the gospel, it's persuasive. 
And we see this in Acts chapter 2. Uh, for verse 41, just kind of backing up a verse, it's interesting kind of conclusion to the, the, the Pentecost story when Peter preached the gospel to thousands at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they were convicted, right? It says they were cut to the heart. And they go out, well, what must we do to be saved? What did Peter says? Be repent and be baptized. And you see them being repenting, and in verse 41 it says that they were baptized. So those who received the word, received the gospel that Peter preached at Pentecost, were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. I mean, the church exploded, right? It's one moment. They had a few hundred people that had followed Jesus. Now Peter gives this sermon at the day of Pentecost. And now he has 3,000 new Christians, new believers that are baptized and then brought into the church. It gives us this kind of a window into what that event was like. It gives us a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a blurb here or about what happened and how this early church, how, how they did church. It says here in verse 42, this is the, 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 the writer of Acts is actually is Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, and he, he, he's writing the history of the church. He says they were devoted, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves to the gospel. That's point number one. They devoted themselves to the gospel. Devoted is a great word, right? It's something we attend constantly to something. We're devoted to our children, or we're devoted to our work, or we're devoted to our, our craft, or we're devoted to a hobby, or we're devoted to a, a, a something, maybe it's a, a, a topic or something you're very interested in. You're devoted to it. You're constantly attending to it, right? If you're someone who's, a, who's into woodwork, or that's kind of your hobby, you're probably constantly doing that, right? You're constantly in your wood, and you're in your in your little area as a shed or uh, in a garage, and you're playing with wood. You're devoted to it. You're attending constantly to it. And this early church, over like 3,000 people, are devoting themselves to the gospel, to the apostles' teaching. We know from Paul that Paul says to Timothy in chapter in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, to look for uh, available and faithful men to pass on the truth of the gospel, to entrust the gospel to people. And Paul tells Timothy that one of the most important things you can do as a pastor is to teach people the word of God, to entrust in them the gospel. And Romans 12, 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be conformed, be renewed by your mind, by the word, that the word of God, that the gospel itself is what our minds should be renewed by. We should be devoted to the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read a few passages out of 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. This is Paul writing to Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 13 of chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writing to, uh, to Titus, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The means of grace for the believer's growth and power is the word. 
And when the church is not devoted to the word, they're not devoted to what gives believers strength and growth and power. The word of God is extremely important to the church. And if the church is not devoted to scripture, it's failing to do one of the most important things that a church does, which is to preach the word, to teach the word. Hence why we do memory verses with children. We want them to know the word. That's why we do catechism questions every week. We want you to be trained in the Word. That's why we preach from the Word. We want you to know God's Word. The reason why we do musics and songs that are based on God's Word is because we want you to know God's Word. If a church is not devoted to God's Word, it's failing to be a church. And they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, to the gospel, to the teachings of Christ, to the prophets as well, in the Old Testament as well. All the church needs is Christ and his word. Not materials, not money, not strategies, not programs. Churches always are complaining they don't have enough money. Funny thing is, we don't know that this early church had any money, right? Who knows who made up these people? They were all Jewish. But we think that, that all churches need, they need a building, they need resources, they need programs, they need a strategy. This church had none of that. And they were both successful. They were successful. Why? Because they devoted themselves to Scripture. People need to be devoted to God's Word. Teaching children and youth God's Word. We don't want to teach them something other than God's Word. We want them to be faithful. We want them to be devoted to Scripture. You know, the reason why we have this, oh, I gave that, gave that Babylon Bee story, why we're shocked that children are college students are leaving the faith, right? The, 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 the number is crazy. It's like 78% of high school kids who are involved in youth group, when they get to college, will leave the faith. And we go, why is that happening? Because a lot of youth are never taught God's word. So we're so shocked just by putting them in a building or putting them in a youth group or a program that somehow that's going to, to save them or make them faithful. It will not make them faithful. That's why we teach children God's word. We want them to be faithful. We want them to be devoted to God. We don't want to entertain them. Same with adults. We want to teach adults God's word. Why? Because if you're not abiding in God's word, you're not a follower of Christ. What does John 15, 1-4 say? That those who abide in me, I will abide in him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 This is the Apostle John. Whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. One who is, is not devoted to God's word will hate his brother. He is not in God. This is a common uh, theme throughout the New Testament. Those who are not devoted to God's word are not devoted to Christ and are not a part of the church. So why would a church teach anything other than God's word? Encouraging and Adults and children and youth and college students in every age group to be devoted to God's word. He even says that their fellowship was rooted in Christ. They devoted themselves to his word because they were Christians. Christians devote themselves to God's word. It's interesting that Luke starts off this section by talking about the baptism of 3,000 souls. These people were Christians, therefore they devoted themselves to God's word. Why would, the, why would the Christians appeal to the world? Why would we partner ourselves with lawlessness, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? Why would we partner ourselves with the world? Why would we partner ourselves with sin? We partner ourselves with God's word. We're devoted to his word alone. That's what Christians do. 
So they're devoted to Christ, they're devoted to the apostles' teachings. Point number two is they devoted themselves to fellowship in the Lord's Supper and prayer. They devoted themselves to fellowship to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. It says here, Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 42, he says that they, uh, were, they fellowshiped by the breaking of bread in, in a prayer. And breaking of bread there is, 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 is language for communion, for the Lord's Supper, that they did this regularly. They were devoted to God's Word, they were devoted to the Christ and the Gospel, and they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. This was a major part of their fellowship. Major part of their fellowship was devotion to God's Word and to the regular practice of the Lord's Supper. I think that's an odd thing, all right? I understand, like, most of the time when we fellowship, like, we do communion every week, but a lot of churches don't do this, right? They don't do God's, the Lord's Supper, or communion every week. Why is this so important? Why does Luke include this piece of information? I understand they were devoted to Scripture. I understand they were devoted to prayer. But devotion to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's Supper. What's interesting about this is communion is, is, is a moment which reminds us, number one, of who we are in Christ. It's this partnership created by Christ in Christ, right? That we as Christians who come together and sit under God's word and devoted to God's word, we are partners, we are in a fellowship created singularly by Christ and in Christ. So that's something we decided as friends or family members, hey, we should like get together once a week and like, you know, just like open God's word once in a while. This is all created by Christ and in Christ. And the Lord's Supper encourages each of us to the faithfulness to Christ and his word. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 tells us not to, to as, as to promoting uh, good deeds and love towards one another. It says to gather together. And don't, don't restrict gathering together or refrain from gathering together. But gather together. And, and, and this is an important part of stirring one another in, in faithfulness and holiness. But communion creates a common ground. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse, verse 6. Paul talks about the importance of our identity in Christ and our unity in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, Paul's talking about breaking down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, that they are all in Christ. That we're all sinners standing at the cross. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. It doesn't matter what your past mistakes are. You could have been a drug dealer. You could have struggled with addiction. But at the cross, we're all equal, right? We're all sinners. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter what titles, if you're a reverend, a pastor, a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a queen. At the cross, we're all sinners, right? And at the cross, we all need Christ's grace. And communion establishes that. It reminds us of that. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account. We all need Christ. We're all partakers of the same Lord, the same means of salvation. That grace is in Christ and in no, nothing else. And if you're an unbeliever, the reason why we say you can't have it is because you do not trust Christ. But what it is is an invitation to believe and take hold of Christ. Why are these people eating bread and drinking, and drinking grape juice at a cup? That's kind of odd. What we're saying with that is that in Christ, we are all of 
the same Spirit, of the same Lord, of the same baptism, and that we trust in the body and blood of Christ with forgiveness of our sins. And so much you go, that's weird, but man, what does that mean to be in Christ? It means you have eternal life, that you're a child of God, that you're welcome into the fellowship of God, and people go, I want that. I want to be a part of that. It's an invitation. Proclaims the Lord's death, right? That's what the Lord's Supper says in 1 Corinthians 11, 26. Seeking God's power. This is, a, this is a, a quote from a book about the Lord's Supper. The writer says, He's supplying needy souls with the grace of the gospel. He is furnishing what we need for the resources of a sacrificial death on the cross. He is pledging to bring each of his children home to the messianic banquet where we shall enjoy in full and what we now enjoy in part life, blessing from, with, and in our Savior. Fellowship is rooted in Christ, right? Fellowship is not rooted in potlucks, food. It's, it's not rooted in, in guys being together and standing around a bonfire. That's not where fellowship is rooted in. It's rooted in Christ. Communion brings us together, reminding us of our shared identity, and then providing us our need for the amazing grace of Christ, right? That it reminds us who we are in Christ, and that it provides and nourishes us that we need His grace. For baptized believers who are in fellowship with the church, the reason why we fix the table, when I say fix the table, we, we, every time we do the Lord's Supper here, we say, this is for believers, these are the, for those who have been baptized, these are for those who are committed to the local church. Because the Lord's Supper is in the context of a regular fellowship. It's when believers, as you see here in Acts chapter 2, these people have been baptized, they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're committed to one. And they take the Lord's Supper together. It's not something for any of us to use for our own ends and our own means, right? I am totally against, and you know what? We did this at our wedding, and I feel bad about it ever since. But, we, but I, I always caution couples who are getting married not to take the Lord's Supper together. And why do I say that? Because it's not in the fellowship of the church, right? It's just two people taking it because they want to. It's not the coming together of all Christians of, of the church and saying, we are sharing, we have a shared identity in Christ, and our fellowship is rooted in Christ, and so therefore we take it the right of the cup. So fellowship is rooted in Christ, and this regular activity of the Lord's Supper is an important part of the fellowship. Because it reminds us, reminds them of their identity in Christ, and it's the needs of grace. In their lives. The thing the other day, they were, they, were, they were devoted to the Lord's Supper, they were devoted towards God's Word, they're also devoted to prayer. I, I think there, there, there needs to be a stronger emphasis on prayer. There isn't a strong emphasis on prayer in this church. And that's probably our fault as leaders when we don't make prayer a more, a more, more important part of this church community. We're, we're not practicing this submitting to the will of God. We believe in submitting to the will of God. We don't practice it through prayer, that dependent on his provision, that our faithfulness and our love for others actually comes through prayer. Because what it does is it reveals the heart of a person. When we pray together, we're actually drawn closer to each other. We're trying to do better at this. We're trying to do better as a church to help us to be better at prayer. One of the things that we are wanting to do is, is, is encouraging some of y'all to come to church early to help us and pray for the service before it starts. 
And I think that coming together of believers to pray for even a service would be encouraging to me as someone who preaches regularly that people are coming to pray that God would speak through the preaching of his word. That God, would pre that God would speak to us through the music and through the liturgy and through the things that we do here. And that people who are not Christians would trust in Christ. As we would pray, because we are dependent on God's will and dependent on God's power to move through that. And what happened as this early church was devoted to Scripture, devoted to the Lord's Supper, devoted to prayer, there was all. They, they actually, people were afraid. There was a holy terror that was happening as people gathered together, devoted to Scripture, devoted to the Lord's Supper, and devoted to prayer. It even says in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 5, that the, when uh, uh, Sapphiris and Ananias, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, what happened? They died. And it caused this fear because people who were not, who were lying, who were not faithful, who were sinning, there was actual real judgment that was happening. And, and what we see here is that the spiritual character of its fellowship, that those who were devoted to Christ and devoted to each other were fraternal love and there's a real strong bond towards one another, creates a sense of awe. That people are like, there's something supernatural about that place. There's something supernatural about those people. And it is interesting. And people are curious about it. And some people are afraid of it. It's interesting when people come to church, you, know, you realize they don't, aren't going to come here very much longer. There's a sense where they don't. I think it's maybe the preaching and, the, and a lot of the prayers and, and maybe the, the love and care for one another. They're just like, I'm not used to this. And it causes a little bit of fear, right? They feel uncomfortable. That is a, that is a, that's a holy thing. When the church loves each other, when they're committed to the word, when they're committed to the Lord's Supper, when they're committed to prayer, it should lead to people who aren't Christians to be afraid of it. To be in all of it. But the third point here is that is a commonwealth created by the word and the body of Christ Jesus. The commonwealth created by the word and the body of Christ Jesus. Acts continues here to kind of say other things about this early church. That they were devoted to scripture, they were devoted to prayer, they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. And by that, they were, um, it says here that they shared, it says here in verse 43, uh, 44, that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings, they were distributing their proceeds as any had need. Now, be careful here, this is not a com commune, this wasn't a bunch of people living in a barn away from society. Okay? This also is not a, a passage that says communism is a, a biblical thing. Okay? Some people have used this passage to talk about the, 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 the Bible encourages communism. What you don't see in here is that it's not forced. This is all voluntary. The selling of property, the selling of belongings, and sharing it for one another when they were both in need. It wasn't like, all right, you're part of the church. The way that this is going to work is I don't care if you're a doctor or a lawyer. We're all going to just take all our money. We're going to put it in the pile, and everyone's going to distribute it equal amount. That's not how it works. So using this passage for that form of government is not correct. What, what happened here, and even, when, even the Acts chapter 5, verse 5, with the fire and Ananias, when they, the reason why they died wasn't because they didn't get the money for the property. It's because they said they were, and they lied about it. No one forced them to sell the property and give them the money. They voluntarily said that and then lied and never gave them the money. 
What you see here is people doing this voluntarily out of their generous hearts. That people were, um, they did completely acts of generosity. They sold a property or sold assets and then gave the money to people in need. Because you, what, what happened probably in this, this early church is that people who became Christians now became automatically outcasts. And so likely that they lost their livelihood due to their profession of faith in Christ. So some who may have been rich or comfortable became Christians, lost their jobs or lost their, their businesses because they were Christian. They were, out, they were made outcasts and therefore they needed the church. Or those who were just simply poor and needed the help of the church. And the church voluntarily and with generous hearts provided for these people. They shared their food with glad and generous hearts. They devoted to worship together, formally and informally. They went to the temple together. They also met in each other's homes. So they were formally worshiping in the temple. They were informally worshiping me at home. That's why we do uh, small groups at homes. It's informal worship. Why we do formal worship here. They shared food with one another. They were hospitable to one another. Which I'm going to just challenge the whole idea that uh, the Christian life is just simply coming to church on Sunday and never interacting with the people at church during the week. The early church practiced this, right? They went into each other's homes and broke bread. They were hospitable with one another. They shared their food. They shared their wealth with each other. I want to challenge you college students. Like, I know you have an apartment that has, like, very little room. But you have a kitchen. I've been in them invites one of us. We will come to your home. With our children, we will come to your, your apartment and we will eat whatever food you have. If it's ramen noodles, if it's, uh, if it's um, a Cheetos, my kids love Cheetos, whatever, just put a soda in front of us. We just want to be in your life. But don't think that because you don't have much, you can't give much. You can give of yourself. Honestly, my expectations are on you is not to have a 3,000 square foot house. With five bathrooms and a playroom for my kids to play in. That's not what they need. They, what they need is just they need you. They need, be, they need your friendship. We need your friendship. If you are someone who has, who has kids and your house is a nut, that doesn't mean you shouldn't invite people in your home. Look for people that don't look like you. Don't just look for people that have families that just like yours. Invite the church into your home. Be generous. Invite people you usually would not befriend. It's risky to love people. It take, take chances. Awkwardness is killing community. It is killing it. The whole idea of awkwardness, well, that's awkward. I don't want someone who's 70 years old in my home. That's awkward. That's awkward. I don't want, I don't want a college student in my home. That's awkward. I don't want people in my home. It's awkward. Dude, it's killing community. It's killing it. We gotta get off our phones. We gotta interact with people. We can't go over people's homes just hang on, hang on our phones and look at our phones. We can't go to a restaurant together and just look at our phones. Get rid of the phones. Interact with each other. There's a, you go to a restaurant today? Like go to a restaurant after church. I've been to 90% of the people there. Husband, wife, children are looking at something. Not even interacting with one another. It's killing community. You cannot have community in the church if we're all looking at our phones all the time. We have to be devoted to each other. We have to love each other. <coughs> we have to be devoted to regular fellowship in the Lord's Supper. And that creates glad and generous hearts because you're, you're unified. We're sharing. <coughs> it creates generosity. It creates a sincerity with one another. We're devoted to God's word and each other, which results in joy and sincerity. The reason why they had gladness and joy <coughs> is because they were in God's word. Because they were in 
uh, regular Lord's Supper. They were in regular prayer, and they were sharing and were charitable with one another, and they loved each other. And what did it create? Joy and gladness. <coughs> Some of you really need that, right? You need joy and gladness. You're like, why am I not joy and gladness? I've got a good job. I've got a family. Why am I not joy and gladness? It's probably because you have arm-length separation from your brothers and sisters in Christ. What happened here? They were committed to each other. There was fraternal love. They shared with each other. And they had joy. If the church and being involved in the community is not a priority, that's the wrong move. It's the wrong logical move. It's going to take faith. It's going to take steadfastness. But it's the right thing to do. It's the good thing for you. Community in Christ creates shared joy and compassion for others. You get out what you put in. The more that you put in, the more you will get out. The last point here is, is I want to just finish with this, is that community becomes the greatest means of grace in the world. It's interesting how this passage ends, is that it, it has this missional uh, conclusion to this in verse 47. It says, They are praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day to day those who were being saved. So they're praising God. Again, they're devoted to God's word, they're devoted to the Lord's Supper, they're devoted to prayer, they're sharing, there's charity going on, there's fraternal love, they're united, they have a shared identity, they're, they're welcoming each other's homes, there's hospitality going on, and they're praising God. And then, implications of all this is they're having favor with all the people. What did Jesus say? If you love one another, the world will know me, right? What did Jesus pray on the high place prayer in John 17? He prays to the Father that they would be one. And what would be the implications of that? The world will know that you sent me. This is not a big surprise. That their love for each other, their devotion to the word, led to what? Missions. It says here that the community has power. The Lord added to their community, their, their, their church, those who were being saved. People were converted to the community. They were coming to their worship gatherings, right? They were coming and they were interested and they were interested in learning more about this Jesus. They were interested in hearing more about salvation in Christ. They were interested in more hearing about salvation in Christ. They come and they're a part of this community of people who are sharing things that they are, those in need are being taken care of. There's true love that's going on between these people. And people are interested in this. And they're invited to be a part of this. And by that, they're converted to the faith. They put their trust in Jesus Christ. The community has power. It has power. I would argue that the greatest apologetic in our day and age is the church community itself. Not Josh McDowell, which Josh McDowell is great. Not um, um, some other apologist, apologist out there. But that the church itself, when it's doing what we see here in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, that the people see this and they are interested. It even says that they found favor with all the people. That their love for one another, their charity, their, their care, their devotion to God's word, their devotion to prayer, their devotion to the Lord's Supper, it led to people being converted to faith. It invites people to affirm the power of the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real. 
It's not some just other religion amongst other religions. It is the only religion. It is the only religion that worships the one true God. It's the only religion that has salvation for your sins. And people take notice. We have to invest in each other's lives. Uh, Kevin Young says this. This is a strong statement. One of the acceptable ideologies amongst evangelical Christians is the ideology of the family. Meaning that, well, if, if Johnny or Susan has a sporting event or an activity, that comes first over God's church, Christ's church. Holidays are for family, right? There's no reason why we'd ever invite anyone from our church to come have Thanksgiving meal for us because that's our time for family. Grandma has his own lunch every Sunday. There's no way we'll be able to ha have fellowship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ after church. This is an issue. And an issue in Evansville, especially. The one thing I learned about moving here to Evansville is that family is so important. Well, I would think it's important. I think family is important. I love my family. But I think it's become a God thing. And it's a reason why I think church community is so weak in this town. is because family comes first and the church family comes far, far, far second. The ultimate relationship is not your family. It's the spiritual relationship that you have with those who are identified with the Lord Christ. That is the ultimate relationship. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12? Who are my mothers? Who are my fathers? Who are my brothers? Look up here are my brothers. Here are my mothers. He's kind of one of those. Those who would trust in me are part of the kingdom of God, and those are my family. So your life is at stake. The call to membership, the call to fellowship, the call to devotion to Christ, it is, it is important to your Christian life, and you cannot leave it up to, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just go to church whenever I'm free. Or I'll commit to a church when I get married and have children when people do that. Your life is at stake. Because as we see here in Acts chapter 2, the importance of the church community leads to your spiritual growth. It leads to your own joy. You cannot just leave that up just for something you'll do in the future or something that doesn't matter. And I think the important part of it, that doesn't motivate you. Maybe this will motivate you. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, and your family's life at stake. Because if they don't see that you're committed to the church, why should they ever be committed to the church? If they don't see Christians who call themselves followers of Christ, who then say, I don't care about the church. Why should they care about the church? So when you say, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Easter? They're going to go, why? You don't go at any other time during the year. Why is it so important to go during this time of the year? Everyone's life is at stake. And we leave this idea of church and commitment to the church and commitment to the community as something that's just not important. All that matters is that I love Jesus. If you don't love this church, you don't love Jesus. You don't love him. His, this church is his body. It's his bride. And to reject her is to reject him. And that's just the facts and the truth. And if you cannot commit to each other, if you can't love the person sitting next to you, the person sitting in front of you, behind you, I don't care how old they are, I don't care what, what their age is, I don't care how much money they have in their bank, how many children they have, if you can't love them, if you can't... <laughs> offer yourself up for them, if you can't invite them into your life, if you can't pray for them and be devoted to them, then there are some real major issues with your faith. Community is so important. It's not only important because it's 
what the Bible says that you should do. It's important because there's a missional aspect to it. That if, if we want the world to know Jesus and to believe in him, we want our friends and family to know him and to believe in him, then we have to be committed to his church. Good Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for its challenge. Lord, for I was this way in college, man, I was not committed to the church. Some of the people in this room, amen, they, they'll attend once in a while. Someone invites them, encourages them to come. Maybe they're a student and they're involved in the campus ministry, they're really involved in the church. Lord, teach them, Lord, the importance of your community, the devotion to your the devotion to the Lord's Supper. When we come around the table and we recognize our identity in Christ and we have this shared identity amongst people that have different backgrounds, they look different than us, different last names, come from different places. And we say, that's my brother and sister in Christ because I look at them and I see that they trust in Christ and I also trust in Christ. We have that shared identity. We come around the table and we take hold of the, of, the, of the bread and we take hold of the juice and we eat it and we drink it and we say I have a brother and sister in Christ I have someone who also trusts in Christ for their salvation and I'm responsible for that person I'm responsible to care for them I'm responsible to share with them the things that you have provided I'm responsible to pray for them I'm responsible to gather with them regularly and may that commitment, may that commitment, when we commit to each other, may you use that, Lord, to bring people to Christ. That people will be added to this community, those you are saving. We don't know who those people are. Well, maybe they're in this room. Maybe they're coming next week. Maybe they're coming next month. Maybe they're coming six months from now. But you know who they are. And you're going to use this community to reach them with the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare us that we would love each other and show people what the gospel does to us. It changes us. It makes us love people we would never love because we share an identity in Christ. But I love you, Lord. We praise you. And help us to love each other. In Jesus' name. If I can get some help, um, if I can get David, why don't you come forward? We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I talked about it. Um, and while we're doing that, uh, Robert is going to, um, he's going to play a song that he has written.